The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight, uh, we're going to continue our study of systematic theology and our study of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, I hope you all have the handout for tonight. I've tried to be a little better and clearer in numbering them. So this is the atonement part two. So if you have that one, you have the right one. I have that one, so I have the right one. So that's good uh, for us all to be on the same page. So uh, the atonement of Jesus Christ uh, really is the center of our faith. It's the center of our gospel. And so for us to understand it properly is essential. Uh, and so I'm grateful that all of you are here tonight. I'm grateful uh, that we don't have a terrible hurricane attacking us. Uh, so we need to keep be, uh, being in prayer for our brothers and sisters and folks on the uh, coast of North Carolina. Um, we've seen the definition of the atonement. The word atonement comes from the English words at one, at one mint. It implies some kind of an estrangement in a relationship and there. Uh, is the foundation of the need for the atonement. Tonight we're going to spend our time looking at strange views of the atonement and how they are deficient. Uh, all of them basically share a deficiency in this, that they don't see any problem between us and God. Really the problem is just with us and with how we get along with each other or how we view God, but that God doesn't have any problem with us. But the fact is that uh, we needed to be reconciled to God and God to us. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Now, Grudem gives this definition. The atonement is the work of Christ that Christ did in his life and in his death to earn our salvation. So we're looking not just at Christ's death on the cross, but in his life. Uh, we saw two key attributes of God, his love and his justice. It's important that we uphold both love and justice to understand the cross. You can't just have the one or the other. And we've, we've seen that both of them were demonstrated or displayed at the cross. Romans 3 says that God's justice was demonstrated. Romans 5, 8 says that God's love was demonstrated. And so both of these are put on display uh, at the cross. Now, we talked last time about the nece uh, necessity of the atonement. Was there any other way for God to save human beings than by sending his son to die in our place? Uh, we talked about how uh, human salvation was not in one sense necessary at all and that God didn't need to save us. We could have just, just been lost. But if you're accepting the premise that God wants us in heaven, uh, he wants those whom the Father has given uh, him to be with him and to see his glory, then there was a need for salvation. And if you accept that, uh, salvation is absolutely necessary. God's decision to save some was perfectly free and unconstrained. But having thus decided... Uh, we asked the question, was Christ's death the only way? And we answered that it was. We could not conceive of another way in which God could uphold both his love and his justice at the same time. It was, it was human sin that was, that was being dealt with, so it was appropriate for uh, Christ to be made a man, human being, to come and take our sinful um, our punishment on himself. So really, in the end, you could say, well, we don't want to limit the creativity of God that he could have found another way. But I think the more you meditate on what it costs 
God the Father, what it cost Christ to save us. You have to think if there had been some easier or cheaper way, it would have been discovered. And and that whole logic comes from Galatians 2.21. If uh, salvation could be gained by the law, then Christ died for nothing. Well, you take that logic and work it out, you're going to end up with the cross. Because if there had been another way, God would have taken it. Uh, it was a terrible thing that happened, but in the end, it was a glorious thing as well. Now, we talked about the nature of the atonement as well, Christ's obedience for us, sometimes called his act of obedience. That's the life that Jesus lived, a life under the law, born of a woman, born uh, at the right time under the law in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4. 4. And so Jesus lived his life under the law, perfectly obeyed all of its precepts, a marvelous thing when you think about it, over 600 commands in the Old Testament, not just the Ten Commandments, but Jesus obeyed every precept, every command, uh, and not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. He understood it. And he was able to cut through all of the human traditions that had been la- lacquered and layered on top of the law and see what was really true about the Sabbath and what was really true about honoring father and mother. He was able to do all of that perfectly, obeying God. So sometimes he had to to um, go a completely different way than the teachers of the law, the Pharisees that were uh, alive in his generation. But he perfectly obeyed God. Uh, We also saw the passive obedience in that things were done to Christ. Uh, The the guilt and the sin was laid on him, his suffering, all of these punishments uh, afflicted on him uh, and that way atoning for our sin. Talked about how Jesus suffered his whole life. Then we zeroed in on the pain in the cross Turning to page two, the physical pain and the death, the pain of bearing sin, the abandonment and the bearing of the wrath of God. We talked about all of those things last time. For me, is a very powerful study as I was thinking about all of those aspects. You look at those four aspects, physical pain and death, the pain of bearing guilt and sin, how wretched that must have been, the feeling of abandonment, not just at the human level, but also when God in some mysterious way forsook him on the cross, and then the fact that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath while he was suffering for us. That is a weighty thing, those four things, isn't it? And, and it bears our meditation. You think about Isaac Watts' great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Not when I glance at the wondrous cross, friends. When I survey it, when I meditate on it, when I think much about what Jesus did. Uh, you know, at that point, our heart is warm toward him and we love him and we worship him. We should think often of it. You know, I was thinking this morning, I was talking to my wife and, um, you know, I, I learned from, from John Piper's book, a quote by George Mueller. I'm going to talk some about this whole concept on Sunday. But how it's our responsibility every day to labor on our hearts until we are glad and, and joyful in Christ. And uh, in other words, that's the purpose of the quiet time, among other things, is so that you are of some use today, you know, because other than that, you're just not thankful, you're not joyful, you're not grateful. And what use are you really? I mean, you've had days like that, haven't you? And every person you touch wishes you hadn't touched them in some way, you know. And, and, and my feeling is all you're doing is spreading gloom and, and, and in some way damage. And my feeling is I don't want to do that. I've done that. And it's a waste of time. And you have to go back and restore and and apologize and all that. I think rather, wouldn't it be better to go and spread blessing? And the only way you can do that is that your cup is filled. You know, that your heart is restored. He restores my soul, it says in Psalm 23. My cup runs over. Well, you're hoping that your cup's running over something that's worth drinking, all right? Not running over with bitterness and complaining and all that kind of thing, but with gratitude. And I think what we have to do is every day 
You know, the scripture says his mercies are new every morning. I think we need to drink at the fountain of those mercies. And the mercies, they flow from the cross, don't they? So I think you ought to go back and think again on these four things, the pain of Christ's suffering and his, his taking our sin and guilt on himself and that abandonment and the fact that he absorbed the wrath of God and work yourself into a position where you're thankful again. Work yourself into a position where you're grateful again. Like it says, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Are you thankful today? I mean, really thankful. Are you speaking words of gratitude? If not, then work on your heart. And, and it's, no, it's not a shameful thing in one sense to, to wake up and need that work done. God, God knew that we needed our souls restored that we weren't going to be starting every day at this high level and we go even better beyond. It doesn't, it's not that way. So we need our souls restored. And I'm just telling you at the top of page two here, these four things are fit ground for meditation for the rest of your lives. Think about it much. All right. Now, we're going to advance our knowledge and our thinking a little bit here tonight. We want to understand further the death of Christ. First of all, we want to know and understand that the penalty was inflicted by God the Father. It was God that required this penalty to be paid. All right. If we want to know who required Christ to pay the penalty for our sins, it was God the Father. Now, look at uh, John 10, 17 and 18. There's so much truth in these verses. It's very powerful, really. Uh, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. By the way, that's an example of how you shouldn't take a verse as absolute, even though it may seem absolute. Verse 17 is not giving us the only reason the father loves the son, even though it says the reason my father loves me. It's just one of many, really infinite reasons the Father loves the Son. But still, you understand what I'm just showing you a principle of interpreting Scripture. It's not the only reason, but it is a great reason, isn't it? The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. In other words, one of the grounds of the Father's love for the Son is His total and complete obedience, even to the point of dying on a cross, like Philippians 2 says. That's a great ground of the Father's love for the Son. Anyway, let's zero in on what it says. No one takes it from me. What's the it in that sentence? Well, it's Jesus' life. Now, you think about that statement. No one takes it from me. Not the Romans, not the Jews, not Satan, nobody. And the way I interpret that is that none of these created beings are capable of taking it from me if I didn't want to lay it down. Go ahead and try. I mean, you remember how the 600 soldiers tried to arrest Jesus and they all fell down when he said, I am, in John 18, when they were trying to arrest him. He could do that anytime he wants. He could take their very lives and existence from them if he so chose. You can't take Jesus' life from him if he doesn't will it. And so we should let, no one should imagine that Jesus, um, you know, died involuntarily uh, he laid it down he laid down his life he was not a victim and i hate it when i read these things that just oh what a terrible thing it was what a victim jesus jesus was not a victim he's a victor but he says no one takes it from me but i lay it down of my own accord i have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again this command i received from my father do you see that the, the, what, what do you get out of that verse well that god the father commanded jesus to die isn't that what it says? God the Father commanded His Son to die. Just like it says in Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush Him and cause Him to suffer. This was the command from God the Father to God the Son that He should die. By the way, it seems also we notice from this verse that Jesus can almost never speak of His authority without immediately thinking of the Father. 
He always is thinking about authority as far as having been given by the Father or the command given. There is no authority except from the Father. All authority in heaven and earth has been what? Given to me. He never talks about authority except that, that, uh, that it's from the Father. Even he talks about that with Pilate, remember? You would have no authority over me if what? It had not been given you from above. Even Pilate's authority came from the Father. That's just, he's just so father-centered, Jesus is. We're not, but he is. So anyway, uh, Jesus, God the Father, commanded the Son to pay the penalty. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There clearly the word God means God the Father, because God the Father that sent his Son. God the Father loved us and sent his Son as a propitiation for us. That's what 1 John 4.10 is saying. Also, Isaiah 53.6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and Yahweh, really, the Jehovah, or however you want to do the, that four-letter um, name of God, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this is the work of God the Father. God the Father commanded Jesus to die in our place. And God the Father required it on behalf of the of the Trinity, since all three persons of the Trinity had the same commitment. That is so important to understand. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit in total harmony, in total agreement about everything, and especially in this case about our salvation. Secondly, we need to understand about the death of Christ that it was not eternal suffering, but complete payment. All right, there's a difference. Now, you might say, how can we take Jesus' three hours on the cross and compare it with what we deserve, which was apparently eternity of suffering in hell? How do they add up? There doesn't seem to be a, you know, a, an accurate accounting there that three hours of Jesus on the cross equals uh, eternity of all of those that will trust in Christ. Well, first of all, we must understand that Christ was finite in time, but infinite in value and worth. We get the idea of Jesus suffering on the cross for three hours because it says from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And the interpretation there is that that's when Jesus was on the cross. So from the sixth hour, which is about noon, to the ninth hour, which is about three in the afternoon, Jesus was on the cross for three hours. Secondly, the book of Hebrews emphasizes again and again the once for all, never to be repeated aspect of Christ's atoning work. This, frankly, is one of its great superiorities to the animal sacrificial system, which we saw those of you that were studying with us on Sunday evenings in the book of Hebrews. Look what it says. Hebrews 9, 25 through 28, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all. That is a, such an important phrase in the book of Hebrews, this once for all sacrifice. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is, to de- is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. So we have this once for all sacrifice. It says in Zechariah that the Lord will take away the sin of the land, the entire land, in a single day. That's powerful, isn't it? That the death of Jesus Christ is so powerful that in a single afternoon he can atone for all of these sins. Therefore, you see, I would hope, the um, problem with the Roman Catholic Mass. I was raised Roman Catholic myself and I didn't fully understand the theology at the time. It's only after I became a Christian and I started reading that I understood what was happening. But, you know, with the transubstantiation, they believe that the wafer becomes the actual body of Jesus Christ and the priest offers up that body to God on behalf of the sinners that are there. Frankly, he'll offer it up if you're there or not. 
he's going to make a sacrifice and offer it up. And it's called somewhat of a dry sacrifice. This uh, Catholic theologian Ludwig Orr in Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma put this, in the sacrifice of the Mass and in the sacrifice of the cross, the sacrificial gift and primary sacrificing priest are identical. Only the nature and mode of offering are different. According to the Thomistic view, that's Thomas Aquinas, in every Mass, Christ also performs an actual immediate sacrificial activity. Well, what happened in the book of Hebrews? I mean, that. how, how in the world do you reconcile that? In every Mass, Christ performs an immediate sacrificial activity? No, He doesn't. He finished His sacrificial work and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's done with that. And it's never to be repeated. It will never be repeated again. But this author says, this immediate sacrificial activity, however, must not be conceived as a totality of many successive acts, but one single uninterrupted sacrificial act of the transfigured Christ. In other words, every time a priest is offering up the wafer, it's the same sacrifice of Jesus just endlessly being done. It just never ended. Well, that's even worse. You know, I mean, you think the punctiliar, you know, again and again and again is bad enough. This is like it never ends. Forever and ever, Jesus is being sacrificed. Well, no, he's not. No, he's not. I, I read it quite literally in Hebrews, once for all, and that's it. Just as man, there's a comparison to death, right? Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so also Christ was sacrificed once and that's it. So you see how it, reincarnation just cannot be because of the incredible parallelism there. Uh, we can't have repeated sacrifice of Jesus once for all. All right. And thirdly, we, uh, we need to talk about the meaning of the blood of Christ. Uh, life poured out into death as a sacrifice for sins. That's what the blood signifies. This is the primary outward uh, evidence of Christ's death, that his blood was shed. Now, people talk a lot about the blood. Sometimes they're embarrassed about the blood language. I remember um, a pastor friend of mine was associate pastor at one of these seeker-sensitive churches. And uh, the pastor actually got up because a uh, hymn, there, uh, there is... Uh, there is a fountain filled with blood was played and he didn't know how it got on the, on the order of service. And he actually got up and apologized for all the blood language uh, to all the seekers that were there. And I thought, oh my goodness, can you imagine a pastor apologizing for the blood of Jesus Christ? Uh, we should never apologize for the blood. There is power in the blood, all those hymns, etc. Uh, the brothers and sisters that went before us, they understood the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. We should never be embarrassed. But what we need to understand is the blood itself is not the issue. It is Christ's blood poured out as a sacrifice. Remember what it says in Leviticus 17. The life of the creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for your sins. And so what happened is Jesus, in, you know, the blood of bulls and goats we learned from Hebrews doesn't atone for any human sin. But it's pointing to Jesus' blood. And it's the blood of Jesus poured out for us that pays the death penalty. Remember, the wages of sin is death. So what it is, it's death by violence. It's the pouring out of blood that atones for our sins. That's what's going on there. And therefore, the effects of the blood are powerful. Our redemption, for example, Ephesians 1.7. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Secondly, the cleansing of the conscience. Hebrews 9.14, it says, How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The blood of Jesus Christ has power and it's the only thing that does to cleanse the guilty conscience. 
And how powerful is that? I mean, if your conscience is defiled, if your conscience is guilty, there is an answer. God has provided an answer, and that is the blood of Christ. It is, it is powerful to cleanse the conscience. Uh, thirdly, the effect of the blood is bold access to God and worship and prayer. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Remember how in, in the time of the uh, Passover, uh, during the time of the Exodus, the 10th plague, God made this very plain. When I see the blood, I will pass over. There's such a clear connection there. So also, when I see the blood, I'll let you come into my presence. If there's no blood, you can't come. You're not welcome. That's the whole lesson of the Old Covenant. Without the blood, you're not welcome. You are barred from presence in uh, the presence of God. You're not allowed to be in His presence. But we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is your confidence, isn't it? And without it, you cannot come. Um, I had a strong sense of that today as we were praying at 6 o'clock. I really did. I, I, I wanted to rem- remember, and, and the Spirit just testified to that, I am allowed to be there only because blood was shed for me. And apart from that, I have no right to be in the presence of a holy God. But that blood was shed, and forever I'm under that blood, and therefore forever I'm welcome in the presence of God. But only on that basis. Fifthly, we have the conquering of the accuser of the brethren by the blood of Christ. You get this in Revelation 12. Um, oh, I skipped one, didn't I? I don't want to miss one. Sorry about that. 1 John 1, 7. A progressive cleansing from remaining sin. It says in 1 John 1, 7, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us or cleanses us from all sin. Boy, is that a powerful verse. That is a wonderful verse. You know why? Because 1 John has perfectionistic tendencies. Have you ever read, you know, in him is no sin, anyone who sins is not in him and all that? And you're like, whoa, boy. And it is so tough to read that. And you think, well, if I'm a sinner, then I'm not a Christian. And actually, lots of folks have struggled with what they call post-baptismal sin, indwelling sin, struggling with sin. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Well, 1 John 1, 7 permanently answers that. It is possible for you to walk in the light as he is in the light and still need cleansing from sin. Do you see that? That is That ends perfectionism right there because you can walk in the light as He is in the light and still need the ongoing cleansing uh, work of the blood of Christ. Also, we should never underestimate sin. On your best day, you need cleansing from the blood of Christ and it is available. We are standing in grace. Isn't that marvelous? That is so good. That shower of grace, that image I've had ever since I first saw that, that insight in uh, Romans 5.2. Romans 5.1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and access by faith, access and opening and introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. A shower of grace pouring on you all the time and you need it. And if you don't think you need it, 1 John 1 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in it. In us, if we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So there's two verses in a row. If we say presently we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, then we've made God out to be a liar. So we can't, we're not going to play the perfectionistic game. We're not going to redefine sin the way Wesley did so that we can pull off perfectionism. We can't do that. Basically, the bottom line is we need this cleansing all the time. And it's available through the blood of Christ. It cleanses us from every sin. So 
What does that mean? You need to walk in the light as he is in the light. But that does not mean be perfect. It doesn't mean be perfect. Obviously, there is a command, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, and it pulls you ever upward, doesn't it? Be completely humble and gentle. Just work on that one rest of the day. Well, you can't just work on it because you have other commands. Sorry, I'm a false teacher. But work on that one, okay? And it says, be completely humble and gentle. Well, will you be the rest of the day? Say, Lord, I am committed to being perfectly humble the rest of the day. All right, now, bring it on, Lord. All the tests, just bring them on. Do you, how long do you think you'll last in that perfect humility? Okay? Is there any indwelling pride still there? Does the Lord not have power to bring it up and show it to you? You need cleansing all the time, don't you? You need the grace of Jesus all the time. So yes, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be completely humble and gentle. Walk in the light as he is in the light. But understand this, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. That's the comfort that we have from the progressive work of the blood of Christ. Fifth, boy, I'm sorry, I missed that one. That would have been sad to miss that one. Now fifth, the conquering of the accuser of the brethren, and that's Satan. Do you realize the devil's constantly accusing you all the time of sin? Sometimes you even feel it, don't you? The sense of the accusations. You're a wretched sinner. Well, the thing is, he's a worse sinner. I don't think you should tell him that, all right? I, you know, it says that, that you, know, <laughs> you know, that even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing, disputing over the body of, of Moses, he didn't bring a slanderous accusation against the devil, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. I've got nothing else to say. I'll let God deal with you because the devil's tricky and powerful. But all I'm saying is, isn't he the very one who is tempting you and pulling you to the sin he's now accusing you of? That's terrible. What a hypocrite. You know, what a hypocrite. So here he is enticing and pulling, and then he crosses a line and points a finger and accuses you. Well, how do you overcome that? Revelation 12, 10 and 11 tells us, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Isn't that wonderful? You do not overcome the accusations of the devil by pleading that you're better than he thinks you are. You're actually not better than he thinks you are. You're worse than you think you are. The devil has more information on you than even you do. He remembers all the stuff you've done. You forget, all right? But you don't overcome him that way. You overcome him by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of the lamb, we overcome his accusations. Sixth, we are rescued from a sinful and futile way of life by the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you uh, from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Oh, if you could just meditate on that word precious. I mean, silver, gold, platinum, diamonds, rubies, all the stuff, material stuff that people think of as precious, was Jesus' blood a material substance? Yes, it was. It is the most precious material substance there has ever been on the face of the earth. Never has been anything as precious and valuable as the blood of Jesus. Look at its power. All of these things I'm listing. And this for a countless, countless multitude of people from every tribe and language and people and nation who are receiving all these same benefits from the blood of Jesus. That's the incredible precious value of the blood of Jesus. Well, what does it say here? Well, it says that the blood of Jesus, this precious blood, has rescued you from an empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. A way of life that led to nothing but hell. A way of life that led to nothing but all your best works blown away like dust in the wind. What an empty life apart from the blood of Jesus. But because of the blood of Jesus, your life actually has value. Your life has meaning. That's the value of the blood of Christ. 
The blood of Jesus has tremendous power to give you meaning and value in life. Turn the page. So that's all meditation on the blood of Christ. Friends, you know, you should take this handout that I've given you and tomorrow get yourself happy before you start your day, okay? Just go through and say, look at all these things you've given me. Get yourself ready for a day of serving God. He's got good works for you to do tomorrow. Maybe you ought to do it when you get home tonight. You got the rest of the tonight. You'll have your spouse with you. Things can happen. Good things, all right? Um, So get yourself in a happy state. Praise the Lord for these good things that the blood of Christ has given you. It's incredible. By the way, this list isn't comprehensive. Go ahead and add to it. Find some more things that the blood of Jesus does for you in the scriptures. Page four. Christ's death was a penal substitution. By that I mean it paid a penalty. There was a penalty to be paid. And it was paid by a substitute. Penal substitution is the key to rightly thinking of the cross of Christ. If you don't think about uh, penal substitution, you will not understand the cross of Christ properly. Now, we're going to look later on this evening at false views of the atonement. All right? They all fail in this matter. We have to understand there was a penalty and it was paid by a substitute. If you don't understand that, you will not understand the cross of Christ. Penal, therefore, means having to do with a penalty, the payment of a penalty. Uh, Substitution meaning that it was paid in our place. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, as we've seen, he was pierced for our transgressions. Okay? Pierced is the penalty. You see that? Crushed for our iniquities. Crushed is the penalty. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Punishment is the penalty. And by his wounds, we are healed. Wounds, that's the penalty. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's substitution. Substitution, penal substitution is all the way through those verses. Do you see it? Jesus paid a penalty in our place. He didn't do anything wrong, but um, he paid in our place. Uh, Christ's death was a penal substitution. Now, the New Testament has a variety of terms describing the different aspects of the atonement. We have four needs as sinners. First of all, we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. We deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. We are separated from God by our sins, so not in a good relationship with him. And therefore, we are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. Those are four different, though closely related aspects of our problem. And Jesus addressed each one of them. Uh, First... Uh, Jesus' death uh, met this payment of a penalty, as we just said. His sacrifice, Christ died as a sacrifice for us, paying the death penalty. Hebrews 9.26 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus' sacrifice pays that penalty. Secondly, we have this issue of propitiation. Now, I didn't talk last time. uh, There's the handout from last time about the whole scrap over the word propitiation. The RSV uses the word expiation. And uh, there's a deep theological discussion over that. C.H. Dodd and some other theologians came along and said that God has no active wrath against sin and against the human race. But sin has a polluting value and therefore we need to be cleansed from sin. And so they chose instead the word expiation, which means a cleansing from sin. Well, it's true that we need cleansing from sin, but that's not what that word in 1 John 4 and Romans 3 means. Uh, That word, which is translated in the ESV, propitiation, Uh, means the turning away of God's wrath by the sacrifice of a substitute. That's what it's all about. And so we have a propitiation. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us, 1 John 4.10. We also have this matter of reconciliation. Christ has effected a reconciliation between us and God. Some of the false views of the atonement uh, deny that God needed to be reconciled to us. God did need to be reconciled to us. He was deeply offended by us. Some of these views say that God had no problem with us. He loves us. 
the problem's us. We feel guilty like Adam and Eve in the garden, hiding from God. God's saying, where are you? Like the father of the prodigal son, I'm ready to welcome you back at any time. But look at you, you're running, you're hiding. You feel guilty. Well, all that's true, but here's the, here's the whole problem is when you, when you just take a portion of the aspect, it is true that we are defiled by sin, we feel guilty and we want to hide, but that's not the whole truth. God is also deeply offended and He is at war with us. And that, therefore, when I say in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus appears in John 20 and shows them His hands and His side and says, peace be with you, that's a huge moment. That's not a minor thing. It's not just hello or that was the Aramaic greeting like salam alaikum or something like that. Like He's just saying, peace be with you. No, no, he's saying, this is what peace cost me. And now you have it. You have peace with God. What that means is that God is at war with sinners apart from the work of Christ. He's at war with us, though we do not feel it. When I evangelize and share the gospel, I say I use an illustration of uh, high blood pressure being the silent killer. You don't feel it at all. Very dangerous. All right, and so you have to get your blood pressure checked because you might not feel badly at all, but it might kill you. Well, actually, the real silent killer is the wrath of God against sinners. You don't feel it. You feel everything's fine. I'm not saying there's no, there's no effects in life that we don't feel an, a sense of unease or maybe even physically might feel ill or, or wonder if God's pleased with us, etc. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying to its measure, we do not feel it. We don't understand how grave is our danger. We don't understand just how dangerous it is to be under the wrath of God. But uh, through Jesus, we have peace with God. Uh, God is reconciled to us. 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 18 through 20 says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now look at this. That God was reconciling the world to himself. Now understand those words. The world was offensive to him. And he had to reconcile the world to himself or he could never accept us. And so God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's a passive thing, but it also has an active effect. All right. Let God reconcile you to himself. That's what we're looking at here. Okay, And then fourthly, redemption. Christ has paid a ransom to rescue us from the dominion of Satan. The ransom was not paid to Satan. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Matthew twenty twenty eight. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you may ask the question, to whom was the ransom paid? Uh, that question should not be pressed too hard. The answer is, we don't know. Okay. Um, Though sin and Satan had held us captive, God didn't owe anything to sin and Satan, so he's not paying anything to them. They're going to pay for their sins, aren't they? They're going to be, Satan's going to be thrown in the, the lake of fire, so he's not paying anything to Satan. Well, did God pay the ransom to himself? Well, it's as though God had kidnapped us himself and had to pay himself off. That doesn't really fit. So therefore, like parables, you don't want to press this ransom language too much to try to figure out who received the payment. We know that God mandated the payment, and so in one sense, he received the benefit of it. We'll take it that way. Now, we're about to spend the rest of our evening in looking at faulty views of the atonement. Uh, this material here in the middle of page 5 is not in uh, Grudem's book. It's rather in this book right here, 
which is my notebook from my systematic theology class, okay, which I took uh, with Roger Nicole uh, years ago. Um, and you can't have this. Now, this is not available to you. But I was reading through it, and uh, I, I'll never forget these lectures on the atonement. It's really powerful. And what he does here, and again, this isn't in Grudem, but um, I don't think that Wayne Grudem would mind uh, this at all. But uh, what this is is a fourfold test of all theories of the atonement. And any theory of the atonement has to go through this grid, this filter, in order to pass muster. And I think it's really very helpful. It's really, you may say, well, what, how many different theories of the atonement are there? Well, there are actually a number of them. And uh, it's important for us to be able to test them and see how they're def- defective. All right, first, the first test is, how does this view of the atonement account for the salvation of Old Testament saints? You have to have some way to get those folks saved. All right, so how, how does it account for it? Secondly, how does this view connect with the Old Testament sacrificial system? What was all that? All that blood, all those animals, all that. How does the the view of the atonement explain that or complete it in some way? There has to be a connection there with the the animal sacrificial system. Thirdly, how does this view provide a proper view of divine attributes, especially God's love, his justice, and his holiness? We have to deal with those things. Have we put God's justice on display? Have we put his holiness and his love on display in this view? And then finally, how does this view explain certain key texts in the Bible, such as Isaiah 53, which is all that substitutionary atonement that we read, Matthew 20, 28, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, Romans 3, 25, that Jesus was a propitiation through faith in his blood and that God demonstrated his justice through him, Galatians 2, 20, that Christ loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, which we just read. I didn't put 21 in there, but you know what it says. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, well, it's right there. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 uh, uses mediator language or a ransom. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Now, I think those verses taken together give us a good view of the atonement. So what we have to do is take these interesting and creative views of the atonement and line them up against these verses and see if they're scriptural or not. Uh, I like uh, the approach that Dr. Nicole took. As I went through, as we went through each of these views, the example view and the, and the moral influence view and all of these, what he would do is he would take the advantages, he would describe what the advantages were of the view. And then he would describe the disadvantages of the view and then he would make an assessment. This is good theological uh, procedure, okay? Because I think in a theological discussion or debate, it would be wonderful if you could present your opponent's views better than they can. In other words, you're going to say, well, these are even better verses and then show why all of them are defective or deficient, all right? It's no, there's no sense in setting up what you call a straw man, setting up a faulty argument that's weak and inadequate, and then they come along and say, that's pathetic. Let me show you real strong arguments for this, and then you end up looking weak. What I think you ought to do is tell folks what their best verses are. When we're going through the whole gender and authority question here, there were some folks in this church that did not have a respect for the word of God. They were saying things like, I don't really care what Paul says on this. So it was amazing because I had to come along and say, do you know what your best verses are on this? The best verses are Galatians 3.28 and some of these others. But let me show you why they're deficient. All right. You have to honor and respect 
a person who's bringing forth a view and try to see if there's some truth in there. But keep in mind what J.I. Packer said. And look at this quote. It's very, very strong. J.I. Packer said in his introduction to John Owen's Death of Death and the Death of Christ, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And that is really true when it comes to these views of the atonement. They're going to take, for example, that Jesus was uh, our example on the cross. And so he was. But is that everything that he was? Is that the whole truth of the atonement? And if you tell me it is, then it's a complete untruth. That's what he's getting at, okay? Well, let's look at this first faulty view, and that is the ransom to Satan theory, okay? This view was first uh, held by Origen, who was a brilliant Alexandrian theologian. According to this view, Christ paid the ransom to Satan, in whose kingdom all sinners uh, were being held captive. Uh, he believed that the devil, by Adam's sin, had acquired some kind of a formal dominion over mankind. In order to liberate mankind from this tyranny, Christ gave his life to the devil uh, as a ransom price. But the devil was deceived and he was not able to maintain for long his dominion over Christ. So basically, he got swindled, okay? <laughs> you know, it's an interesting view. Uh, you know, the devil didn't know who he was dealing with and in the end, he got the short end of the stick and he'll end up in hell and he won't own anything. So um, that's, that's the view, the, the ransom to Satan theory. A modern v- version of this view is held by these authors, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, and some of these other guys, these word faith folks uh, who teach a modern-day variation of the ransom theory. Their concept is that when Jesus descended into hell after his death, he was tormented by Satan and all his demons. The suffering that he experienced during this torture was the ransom that God paid to Satan. That is horrendous. I mean, it's unbelievable what some of these people will teach and say. And how in the world you can support that from any, even a single verse of Scripture, I have no idea. This view is faulty because nowhere in Scripture is Satan given the power to demand anything from God, to demand payment from God. Nowhere is it stated that God owed any kind of payment to Satan. Satan is always pictured as an evil being who is under the wrath of God and who will one day be thrown in the lake of fire. This view also fails to deal with the propitiation passages that deal uh, with God's wrath, that God's wrath over sin is atoned for. Uh, the next view I want to deal with is actually on page 7. Let's go to the example theory instead of the moral influence theory, okay? <laughs> the example theory is that basically Jesus died to give us an example of love. All right? So he gives us an example of love. He also gives us an example of sacrifice and an example uh, of obedience to the Heavenly Father. Um, Christ's humble sacrificial death therefore gives us an example of how to behave in this world toward God and toward others. Now the view has at its heart a denial that God needs any price paid for sin. There's really nothing that needs to be done on God's side. He's fine. We are the ones who need help. And Jesus is going to give us an example and he does so by dying on the cross. <laughs> well, all right, let's, what's good about this view? Please don't say nothing. Because the fact is Jesus is a great example and he's held up for us as an example in several places. For example, Philippians 2, it's all about you should have this same attitude in you which was also in Christ who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Is Jesus an example for us? Certainly he is. And then 1 Peter 2.21 says, To this you are called because Christ suffered uh, for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So definitely Jesus' death was an example for us. But we have some foundational problems with the example theory. 
All right? If Jesus did not take our guilt on himself, if, if there's no substitution, if there's no exchange of guilt for righteousness and all that, then what really is being displayed there? Some have said that what's being displayed there is insanity. All right? Think of it this way. Suppose you have a house that's on fire. All right? And inside the house, let's say there's, there's a, a mother, there's no father in the picture, maybe he's away uh, or a single mother or whatever, and uh, she's got some small children. She can barely get out of the house, uh, and she's still got one of her children up on the second floor. The neighbors are running, is everybody out? No, 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 my baby's up there, and she can't. She's overcome by smoke. There's nothing. And so somebody says, I want, I want to just give you an example of how much I love you. Runs in the house, goes up the stairs, finds the infant, and just before the whole structure collapses, tosses the infant out to waiting arms, the baby is saved, and the person dies. Would you say that that is an example of sacrificial love? I would say it is. And people for years would be talking about how this person exchanged their life for that of the infant. The key thing is someone was saved, all right? But suppose the neighbors come and say, is everybody out? Oh, yeah, we got out just barely, but we're all out. We even got some of our possessions out. Uh, so what's left? Well, there's nothing. Everything's, we're safe. So, well, I want to show you how much I love you. I want to give you a display of my love. I want to give you an example that you will always remember. And in they run up the stairs and they're never seen again. What would you think of that neighbor? If you were a reporter reporting on that example, what would you say? Wouldn't it be like an ultimate head scratcher? It'd be like a, a puzzlement. You're saying, what, is, what was gained? They're really not an example of anything except insanity. Like, don't do this, all right? If everybody's safely out, then you don't need to go in a burning house. Everybody's fine. And if we didn't need to be saved from the wrath of God, then why did Jesus die on the cross? What is really being displayed there? Uh, it's defective. The view is defective and strange, really. But if, on the other hand, there was no other way than that Jesus died, then we have an incredible example. Secondly, uh, and this is something Luther is big on, Luther didn't like to talk a lot about Jesus' example because he, th he said that it led, it tended to lead to salvation by works. That basically, as you're looking at Christ's example, you're going to try to imitate Christ's example, and it will lead to one of two bad ends, either to arrogance or to despair. Can you understand why? Why is it if you're trying to imitate Jesus for the salvation of your soul, it will lead to either arrogance or despair? Why to arrogance? Why do you think it would lead to arrogance? You think you're doing well. <laughs> I'm like Jesus, and I'm good enough. I'm, I'm like Jesus enough to, to go to heaven. That is, that's repugnant arrogance. It's terrible. It, and frankly, flies right in the face of Galatians 2.21. If you could have done that, then why did Jesus need to die? If somebody could have done that, then, then do it if you can. All right, how does it lead for more of us to despair? If you're looking at Jesus as your example and that's how you're going to be saved, how could that lead to despair? Well, how are you doing? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel <laughs> there's some days that I say, yeah, the bar is too high. If that's what it takes... I wouldn't have done that, we could say. We look at the cross and say, that's an example of love, but I don't see that I would have done it. And so I fall, I fall short. I'm not saved. It really just falls apart, do you see? The second uh, view is like at the moral influence theory. And the, basically the idea is that Jesus came in some way to give us an influence, that we needed to be influenced. Peter Abelard start, uh, started this um, in the 12th century. 
He held that God did not require any payment for the penalty of sin, rather that Christ's display of love and justice at the cross was established to show us how much God loves sinners. And that, that when you read the story of Jesus, and when you consider all of the suffering that He went through, and you consider the love that He showed in uh, uh, going through all of that agony, that something melts inside us. And we start to love God where before we didn't love Him. We're, we're influenced by that. We're, we're swayed by it. We're, we, we, we melt. Yeah, well, what's the problem? The problem is if there's no substitution, if Jesus isn't actually bearing our guilt when He dies, then, then what kind of God is it that would make His Son die like that? Really, to some degree, it's a horrendous, grotesque thing. That it's actually one of the... It's probably the greatest injustice ever that Jesus is dying a horrible death and didn't do anything. He's innocent and God wanted it to happen and the whole thing is actually grotesque. So it actually could be quite repulsive. It's not going to influence us towards God. It's actually going to make us repulsed from a God that would do something like this because in the end, it would have been the greatest injustice ever that this innocent person is suffering in this way. He's the only truly innocent person that's ever lived. And so he's suffering. So it backfires. And isn't it ironic that the very things that these views try to achieve, they end up exactly the opposite way. The example theory, example of dementia. Okay? Moral influence, the influences that were, were repulsed in the end. Do you see? They're defective. And you know why? Because at the root of these views is a denial that we needed saving. At the root of the, the view is a denial that we have active guilt before God and that God has an active wrath toward us and that that's a massive problem we can't fix. If all you have is example and moral influence, uh, then um, these views just completely fall apart. And by the way, uh, if you look at Dr. Nicole's test, how does the example theory line up with the salvation of Old Testament saints? How do they benefit from it? How does Abraham benefit from the example of Jesus dying on the cross? It's a bit of a problem, isn't it? In that he hadn't seen it. And, and how can you be influenced by something that hasn't even happened yet in history? Same thing, moral influence and example. They fall apart on the salvation of Old Testament saints. How, how do they connect with Old, Te- Old Testament sacrifice, the animal sacrifices? They don't. Animal sacrifice, and frankly, the people who espouse the example theory and moral influence theory, they tend to denigrate the Old Testament and say, we don't have any idea what those animals were about. What a mess. Thankfully, we're beyond that now, and we can just look at the, at the purity of Jesus' example for us and the love he showed. Uh, frankly, I see an intimate connection between the animal sacrifices and Jesus' death. Don't you? Don't you just see a continuity right through? They're ineffective, but they picture Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, the other theory is the governmental theory. Hugo Grotius in the 16th, 17th century taught this, Dutch theologian. The view teaches that God, by being the sovereign king of the universe, did not actually need any payment for sin and could simply and sovereignly have forgiven but he needed to put on a demonstration that his laws had been violated and that some kind of payment had to be made whenever moral laws are violated. Thus, Christ did not actually pay the price for anyone's sins, but simply suffered to show that when God's laws are broken, there must be some payment of a penalty. So basically, God made an example of Jesus. You know how you make an example of, of one of them and, and put his head on a stake or something like that? This is what will happen to you if you break the, the laws of God. Again, there's a big problem here, and that's gross injustice. Do you see? If there's no substitution, if there's no transfer of guilt, then uh, this is really an example of God as a tyrant more than anything. All right? 
This view fails to adequately account for the scriptures that speak of Christ bearing our sins in his body uh, on the cross and specifically dying for our sins and of Christ being propitiation for our sins. Also, it takes away the objective nature of our guilt and of Christ's payment for our guilt. Therefore, we have no objective certainty that our sins have in fact been atoned for. So those are some of the strange and interesting views uh, that have been put forward on the atoning work of Christ. Um, Maybe you've heard of some others. Hopefully you won't come up with any others, all right? We don't need any other strange views of the cross. The bottom line is substitutionary atonement is the only view that lines up with the four tests that Dr. Nicole gave. How are Old Testament saints saved, right? What about Old Testament sacrifices? Why did God command them to be made and why are they no longer made? I mean, that's a, that's a big question for our Jewish neighbors and friends. Why did God command animal sacrifice and why are there no longer animal sacrifices as per the law of Moses? Why are they done? I know the answer to that. So do you, right? Pointing toward Christ, don't need him anymore. That's the, that's the answer. But apart from Christ, there's no good answer to that one. And then, and then thirdly, what about the attributes of God that we set are on display? His love, his justice, his, uh, his holiness. Do you see that in the governmental theory or in the moral influence theory, the example theory? I don't think so. I actually think they backfire because they make God out to be a capricious tyrant who's doing horrible things to his son who therefore uh, was innocent while suffering. But if Jesus actually was our substitute, he was not in one sense, now understand me, innocent while suffering. By the way, I got into trouble on that very issue. I'll never forget this. I was at uh, seminary uh, and I was sitting in a New Testament class and uh, the professor, Greg Beal, who's written some great commentaries on uh, on the book of... Uh, uh, Revelation and Daniel, the connection between Revelation and Daniel is just a great, great friend and brother. Um, but he asked the question, um, you know, if Jesus was innocent on the cross, how could it be just for him to suffer? So, and this is my mistake. Uh, the class ended at half past and this was 33 past. So you don't shoot up your hand and say deep, profound things that get you into trouble when you're already three minutes into overtime, okay? So I raised my hand and said, because Jesus wasn't innocent on the cross. The place went dead silent. And, the, and Greg Beale said to me, said, what? And I said, well, he wasn't innocent. He was our substitute. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, I thought that verse would help me, but it wasn't. It was like I was in a foreign country and people were just staring at me. And I started to feel my skin crawl. And I thought, is my theory of the atonement another weird one? Have I done something wrong here? And then he looked at me puzzled and he said, well, what does that do with, to, to your in, view of the incarnation? And I was like, what? And then he said, well, listen, uh, do the reading. Or Everybody got it. And people are walking, looking at me. I said, what did I say? And to this day, I don't know what happened there, like the mental disconnect. I still think I was right. That in one sense, mysteriously, but I didn't put those words. I should have said, in some sense, mysteriously. But I didn't say that. I said, Jesus wasn't innocent on the cross. But you know what I mean. He wasn't, in some sense, mysteriously innocent on the cross. Okay? I got three minutes. All right. There was a transfer. He took my guilt into himself and then suffered justly for it. Tom, am I all right on this? I need to know. I mean, you've been a pastor a long time. You're shaking your head. I'm scared now. (laughs) All right. All right. and write Greg Beale a note, uh, whatever. I know that his view of the atonement is perfectly orthodox too, but we just were having a communication thing there that day. I don't know what was happening. But in some sense, mysteriously, Jesus was not innocent on the cross. 
And why was that not unjust for God? Because he agreed to do it knowing what was going to happen. In Gethsemane and before the foundation of the world, he accepted the command from God to do this. And that's why the Father loves him, because he was willing to do this for us. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the things that we have learned tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your great mercy. We thank you for sending your Son. We thank you that because Jesus was uh, our substitute and took our guilt and our sin and our iniquity and our filth into onto himself and then suffered the just punishment for those things, we are free of all of them. And forever we're free. God, I pray that my brothers and sisters here tonight would have the joy and lightness of a clean conscience not because they've done some good works that they feel good about today, not on any basis of service or we led someone to Christ today or prayed extra long for somebody or anything like that, only in that those works show that we're connected to Christ do we have joy. But Lord, instead that Jesus suffered for us, that his blood was sufficient for us, let that be our joy, our cleansing, our righteousness. God, help us to be happy in you the rest of the day. And Lord, help us to reach out with this gospel, this gospel of substitutionary atonement, the gospel of Jesus dead on the cross for sinners. Lord, help us to share that to our neighbors and really to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.